just that personal touch. Of course, you know, in the modern world, people are using all these marketing automation systems and a gazillion other things. Nobody's fooled. There's a huge difference between the personal touch when you actually engage with a person. They feel it. You learn from it. Everybody's enriched. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today, our guest is John Edelson, who is the founder and president of Time for Learning. John, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Nick. Love being here. Awesome. Well, as you and I were just talking a second ago, you're actually the founder and president of a a whole bunch of companies, right? So maybe let's start there. Tell us what Time for Learning is and kind of your conglomerate of companies and what you guys focus on. Okay, so I started Time for Learning in my living room. I was late in my career. I'd already run companies, raised venture capital, been part of two companies going public. The idea in starting this company was to do something really beautiful, something really nice. I'd kind of been through the mill with all sorts of boards of directors and difficulties and compromises. But this was really going to be a personal effort by me to do something that I found meaningful and try and build a beautiful business around it. So my vision was that online education was getting really good and that we could build a subscription business for for kids based on providing them education. Now, before this, I'd been in the video game industry. I actually uh, went platinum on the PlayStation with a game. So I came at it with the arrogance of someone who knows how to hold kids' attention. I have huge insights. When I looked at the uh, software that I saw in the industry, I thought, gosh, I can create time for learning. And time for learning will be so much better than that texty, boring software that I'm seeing. I was also sort of an experienced business guy, Harvard MBA and all that. I guess smart enough or scared enough to think, of course, Other people have tried this. A lot of people with more talent than me and more energy and more resources have built some spectacular looking software subscription services, but they're all out of business. They've all done badly. So do I really want to spend all that time and money, you know, spend my limited resources trying to create new crazy software? So part of the idea from the start was time for learning was going to be special. And first, we were going to go find an audience. So I started by licensing software that was going into schools and then developed an audience. And the idea would be that along the way, I would encounter some real needs. I'd have real customers who really had needs I couldn't fulfill with licensed software. And that would be where I would focus on building something creative and new. Is that your goal from the beginning when licensing to schools was you're trying to build up a customer base that you could market to later? The idea was to get in touch with the market and really understand their needs. And then from there, when I started developing software, which is a really long-term, expensive commitment, I would know that I was doing it because I was in touch with users. And that's oddly what happened. I started the company in my living room in 2004. Within a few years, I was earning my living within three or four years. It's been sweet selling ever since. Our revenue over the last... Since 2004, I guess 17 years looks like a staircase, sometimes big steps, sometimes little steps, but it's been up and forward every year. It's up and forward. That's definitely the way you want to go, right? The secret formula, in case anyone wants to know, is basically customers that are getting their money's worth. It's that simple. First, you got to find a real need. 
it's easy to think you're filling the need, but then everybody's canceling and you don't really know why. I mean, most people don't call up and tell you, they just decide to hit the cancel button. What Time for Learning has always strived for is to be a meaningful part of the kids' lives, to really provide an education that they feel that they need, that they want to devote time to, that makes enough difference to them. That's been our secret, focusing on quality and relevance to them. Now, Time for Learning as a service, is that for the homeschool crowd? Is that a supplement to in-school learning? It's a great question. We ask ourselves that every day. The answer is, yeah. We started, and my focus was basically the tutoring and the service market for the relatively well-to-do suburban crowd. I saw how much money was being spent on Kumon and Huntington and, and all of this. I thought, gosh, I could do that same thing online, and it'll be a lot more convenient for everybody and a lot less expensive. Within the first few years, a number of people who were homeschooling found us, asked if they could use it for homeschooling, and I said, well, let's give it a try. So we had a whole bunch of parents using us as homeschooling, and I was learning from them about what homeschooling is and what they're trying to do and why they're doing it. And these ended up being my people, that after a few years, I focused on them. So we're probably 90% servicing the homeschool business and 10% either people using us for a summer program because their kids need a little enrichment or remediation during the summer, or during the year where people use us as a supplement particularly during the COVID time where instruction is not necessarily that good. There's an awful lot of kids who have trouble following what's going on in the computer and teachers that aren't that good at it. There's an awful lot of them that'll follow up and take the lessons from time for learning as a supplement so that they can keep up with the school's program, school's curriculum. So what, what are some of the key differences from a product perspective between my daughter goes to in school and they're on the Chromebooks all day and they're doing applications online there, but it's still teacher-led, right? Versus something I, I think that your product probably needs to be more, take them through it fully online. So what are some of the key differences there? Time for Learning is a complete curriculum, but I also want to emphasize that a complete curriculum is not a complete homeschool program. So first we'll talk about where we are complete. It's pretty well specified what students are supposed to learn in third grade math or second grade language arts. These are well-defined topics. Almost every state agrees what the students should be learning. And learning means you get a certain amount of instruction. Hopefully, it's good instruction, so it, it sticks. There's generally a concept of the teacher showing how something is done. I do. And then we do it together. And then you do it. This is the way schools work. The purpose of the practice is to, if it's a skill, to learn to apply the skill. It also helps you apply critical thinking. So sometimes they've given you information about something historical and they want you to compare it with something else. And that requires an awful lot of thinking and critical thinking. Was this revolution like that revolution or not? When uh, Texas broke off from Mexico, was that like the American Revolution when we broke off from England? Yes or no, in what ways? A lot of follow-up to a lesson is critical thinking, compare, contrast, try and think it through and absorb it. And then the general next part of every lesson is a little assessment to make sure that you, that you actually got it. And Time for Learning provides all this. When we teach, we will take them through a multi-stage instruction, practice, critical thinking, reinforcement, elaborate, apply to other things, and then an assessment. So we're a complete curriculum in that sense. A lot of what they use in schools or a lot of the software you see will just be addressing 
one of those pieces. So we do instruction, we do critical thinking, we do application of the problem or practices, we do assessment, we do record keeping, we do scheduling. I mean, if a, when the mom starts the year and says, oh gosh, how much am I supposed to do every day? And we have a little scheduler where you say, well, when are you starting? Well, I like to start Tuesday after Labor Day. So you, you pop that date in. And when do you finish? And what holidays do you take? And what courses are your kids signed up for? And then our thing sort of magically or algorithmically scatters all the dates, all the exercises through. So if they stick to the schedule, they'll finish on time. And of course, people don't stick to schedule. They get ahead. They get behind. And we have some level of adjustments for all that. So in that sense, we're relatively complete. And a fantastic foundation for your language arts program, your math program, your science program, your social studies. We have probably a dozen electives up in the middle high school area. We have languages, a great game-based way to learn all your math facts. This is really popular. Time for math facts. In fact, that's one of the ones an awful lot of parents license from us just for a supplement around school. Is there then a parent component to the product as well as the kid. So for being able to go in and check the progress and I assume great assignments and things like that. Parents are a huge part of homeschooling. They are the school. They are the teacher. Of course, in this day and age, a lot of the parents that have gotten into it have gotten into it somewhat abruptly. It's not because they necessarily wanted to homeschool. They sort of did it as a last resort because schools just weren't working for their kids. They were worried about it for health or any of other reasons. So parents are very, very important to us. It's mostly mothers, frankly, probably about 90% mothers. Not that we count, but it tends to be disproportionately mothers. Awkwardly, the second most popular group that we deal directly with is uh, grandmothers, and fathers rank third, which has always struck me as odd and archaic, but that's what we see these days. We do a lot for them. We have oodles of information for them as they set, try and understand what homeschooling is and how they go about it. It's a very active thing for parents to do. We do a lot of the heavy lifting, but there's a lot more lifting to do. There's a parent login where they can make all sorts of account adjustments. There's an awful lot of parents. We, one of our pieces of advice for parents is homeschooling is a little bit like riding a bike. That you can study it in advance and you can think about it, but until you get going, you're just not in the game. So riding a bike, just get on a bike and let's give it a try. So homeschooling, if that's what you're going to do, you could study it. There are some things you should learn. You should learn this, your state laws. You should come up with a few theories, but you're really just thinking about it until you get started. We urge them to get started, but just put your child on time for learning and then watch them. Don't help them. Just watch out of the corner of your eye. Look at the reports. And over the first few weeks, you'll learn a lot about your kid probably as a student because we don't necessarily know our children as students. We know them as, as a family member. We love them. We treasure them. We have all sorts of things. But as a student, it's a little different. I can think of one mom who told me that by the end of the second week, she realized her daughter was a math whiz. And all that business of her daughter not liking the school and it's really boring, it came down to the fact she was interested in math. And then mom pretty quickly decided the fourth grade math program was too slow for her and just clicked her right up to fifth grade. And the gal loved it. That was more challenging and she was interested. Mom had no idea. The other side of that story was mom also realized that her little darling had somehow failed to pick up the basics of reading, that she was not, she hadn't mastered phonics, and you're supposed to have it down by the end of second grade. She was having a lot of trouble sounding words out. So mom backed her up to some of the phonics materials to build her skills and get immediacy 
across that. But none of this, all of this had somehow escaped her until she actually watched her daughter as a student. The other thing that starts happening is if you watch your student and you start talking to them, you'll realize they have all sorts of interests, which you can capitalize on. You know, I did a unit on bees and she, all of a sudden they're talking about bees. Well, time to go on a bee trip, trying to go do a, a field trip to the, whatever the word is for the bee place. The bee place. <laughs> the bee place. <laughs> um, I don't know myself. And you also find some deficits where they're going to need special help and you can do it. So being a homeschool parent is can be a lot of fun. In every community in the country, there are homeschooling uh, groups. In fact, there's often four or five, which is good because they come in different flavors. And depending on what you're looking for, some of these groups you will not like. They're quite a different flavor than you. But just like Match.com or something else, you give a bunch of them a try. And pretty soon you'll find one that you fit with. Is that something that's facilitated through your site? Is that community where they can get together and share stories or work together? Yes. So our Facebook community has been very, very hot. It's been growing by leaps and bounds. There's actually a few different communities. There's the big public page, but there's also a bunch of private groups where people are invited in to chat. There's dozens of posts a day and hundreds of comments. People are pretty honest. It's one of the places to vent. A common reaction, frankly, is parents are panicked. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a teacher. Who am I to teach? I didn't do very well in school. My two kids are now dependent on me. How am I going to do this? And what's fun is there are all these experienced homeschoolers, some of whom are just three weeks ahead of them, and some are five years ahead of them, who say, I remember that feeling. I still get it sometimes. Calm down. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. You go through these motions. It basically works. And this is one of the things about education. We know how to do it. If you actually do it, it works. Now, you got to make sure you do all the right things. If you want to also give an example, let's say I had a, a second grader and I was trying to put together a reading program for a second grader. Personally, my language arts program would start with a reading program. So I'd go to the library once a week and pick up two new books and make sure they get read. I'd have a journaling program, one of these little notebooks, and the child would be expected to write in it on Monday, maybe something about the weekend, on Tuesday, something about the book she finished, Wednesday, something about one of her lessons, and then Thursday and Friday might be art days when she draws them. But there'd be a regular thing, and you know, 20 minutes devoted to that. I'd be part of homeschool groups for several reasons. One would be show and tell. All the second graders should learn to stand in front of a bunch of other second graders and talk somewhat formally about uh, this is an iPhone or whatever she's bringing in to show and tell about. Should answer questions and the kids also take a turn listening and they should learn the basics of that. In second grade, depending on the kid, we might be working on handwriting still. We might be on the typing. We might be doing both. But once you go through this list, eventually you get to, you know, we got to do vocabulary. We got to do phonics. We got to do word attack strategies. We've got to do metaphoric language. We've got to do uh, nouns, verbs, parts of speech. There's a whole lot of fundamental language arts things, which nobody knows quite what you're supposed to do in which grade. How would you figure that out? How would you do that yourself? I guess you could get a textbook. That sounds boring. And the answer is, that's what Time for Learning does. So all that fundamental stuff, you just follow on us and we'll, we'll take them through the, the basics of, of language. You had said before that most states agree on what second grade math is. 
for those that don't, do you accommodate for, hey, I'm sitting in Texas and Texas requires this particular thing? Does it adjust based on that? Well, we have basically a superset of what you have to study. And the real differences between the states are primarily in social studies. And there we don't do it. So we don't, we don't have Texas history the way you would, you're supposed to do it in the states. But there's been a lot of changes in the way we teach. It's gotten a lot more rigorous and national in the last decade. That's mysterious to a lot of people. Let me, let me tell you my take on it. When I went to school, the teachers spent a lot of time on synonyms, books and magazines. They're sort of the same thing. Large, big, fat, gigantic. These are all synonyms. My reaction back then was, these words mean different things. I mean, they're in the same bucket. Why are you teaching synonyms? Well, they don't. In the modern world, they don't teach synonyms so much. The focus is on nuances of meaning shades of meaning. So what they ask kids to do is distinguish between similar meaning words. And they have it explained grade by grade. Even in kindergarten, you're supposed to work with shades of meaning. What are you supposed to do? Ah, the exemplar exercise is we're going to focus on moving across the room. So one by one, the kids are given an assignment. You, you are marching across the room. And the little girl will be just like a soldier marching across the room. And you, little boy, I want you to skip across the room. And you, I want you to crawl across the room. And you're going to dance across the room. And you're going to, and it turns out pretty soon, the kids will have 20 different funny walks to express the nuance or the shade of meaning of each of these words. And you can do it with everything. You can do it with smiles, facial expressions, ways of eating, ways of talking. And so the kids are supposed to use physical activity to express their understanding of shades of meaning. By second, third grade, you're supposed to be able to get this in uh, multiple choice questions to distinguish which of these words would best complete the tone of that sentence. And by the end of elementary, by fifth grade, you're supposed to control that in your writing and be able to make sure that your adjectives, or it's usually adjectives, but it could be nouns or adverbs or something else, actually correspond to the feeling you're supposed to get. So if you're talking about something being scary, are you picking the right level of scary? Is it creepy? Is it spooky? Is it intimidating. I mean, these are all synonyms, but by fifth grade, you're supposed to be able to pick the right one. And this is the sort of stuff that's become nationwide as more rigorous than it used to be. So I'm pretty excited about the modern emphasis on, on more rigor. Sure, that standardization, I guess, if you want to call it that across the states, makes it a little bit easier on you, right? When you're putting that curriculum into the site, that it is like that, and you're not having to deal with too many nuances. Between just the breadth of curriculum that you have to cover, and you guys do cover K through 12, and the parent component and the student component, it sounds like a pretty complicated platform that you've built. I guess talk a little bit about that evolution, where you guys started, maybe some of the technology choices that you made, because this is in a lot of ways very relevant to the listeners, but even more so for what you guys do, how did you start? And then how did you scale it up? I started in my living room and my resources were limited. I hired a programmer at $35 an hour to put together the website and get me going. The core business vision was that there was a lot of software that was going into schools, which I could license on a relatively reasonable basis and then relicense to consumers as long as I stayed out of schools. So I started with pre-K through second grade. I started with just a few grade levels and just a few subjects. I kind of assembled them and put a, a shopping cart on the front and a login system. I got myself a phone line, which I would answer as the support person and, and an email. 
And I went to an awful lot of local business sessions where I learned about things like email marketing and search engine optimization. And I was visionary in that, although it was not yet time, I bet heavily on broadband. So the software I licensed really worked sort of poorly across those old modems. But at the time, that was a huge problem. But I was starting a business. I didn't want to be competing with other people that had mature businesses that worked on modems. I was betting on the fact that the world was going to catch up with me. I was going with broadband. Similarly, I never did any traditional marketing. I saw this search engine and the ability to do optimization and try and get in the right places in the search engine for terms. I saw that you could do pay-per-click, and that seemed like a brand new cool thing. I was doing it both on Overture and <laughs> Yahoo and Google and some other things that have come by the way. We were early use of mom bloggers, big time working with them, getting reviews. We did a lot of social media early on. It was Yahoo groups and forums. There was a lot of guerrilla marketing, but very much partnership with the people. I mean, there, there would be a forum with mothers of kids with special needs, you know, mothers homeschooling kids with uh, dyslexia, or mothers homeschooling kids with attention deficit issues, or mothers with kids with reading issues, or kids on the spectrum. And I would approach them saying, you know, I got this curriculum, it's very useful for learning. I don't know that much about your type of children. Would a number of your parents like to review it for us? I'll give them free memberships for three months. All I'm asking is that you do a review within your forum as to how it worked for your children. And then you share it with me because it'll be good feedback. It worked like magic. It was a personal approach. I went after niches, after niche, after niche, after niche. These special needs groups exist across all 50 states and an awful lot of cities. Just a little elbow grease and personal approach. I could get reviews. A lot of them were not a fit. There's certain kids who don't do well in time for learning, and they'd explain why. And that was useful for me. That told me what trees not to go bark up. And a lot of them work very, very well. They'd never seen anything like time for learning. Time for learning revolutionized so many families' educational experience. Parents who've been struggling, finding materials, collating materials, trying to string them together. So much work. And time for learning, it was all done for $20 a month. We revolutionized the industry and we went through it like a knife through butter. So that's how we started. So the groups that you went after when you were trying to figure out, is this a good fit for your platform? I would think that if you solicited feedback from them and were incorporating it, you are developing some evangelists of your brand, right? That are happy to have you accept their feedback and put into it. I'm sure they're out there shouting the praises. This is where I'm different than many startups and many mentalities. I never wanted to raise venture capital. I never wanted to write a uh, business plan. I just wanted to do the work. I just wanted to do the work. I was dying to work hard at something I cared about. And this is why Time for Learning has worked. I thought talking to moms about their kids' educational needs and trying to address them with software, I thought then and I think now it's the most interesting thing in the world. There's nothing more interesting than kids' education. How do you move them forward in meaningful ways? So when I talk to these ladies about their kids and their kids' education, I learn things. And I would often go back to someone who said something interesting a week or so later. Hey, you told me this. I'm not sure I understand it. And of course, I was also building a business. So I would write it up and say, gosh, I got this write-up, anonymized it, so your name isn't really there. You just have your first name and your last initial. Would you mind if I put it up on my website? 
said, mind? I'd love it. Why don't you get a picture of us up there? <laughs> I'm like, what? Really? I guess I better sign you a release before I put it up there. <laughs> I mean, they were proud of their stories and their successes and their kids. And their kids loved it. So I would have this content sort of dished up of moms explaining what had been before they met Time for Learning, how they Time for Learning fit into their life, and how it changed things for them, and how grateful they were. And if anybody was interested, here's my email. Look, I'm not putting your email up on the web. But I unleashed so much enthusiasm. And these evangelists, I just had to channel them. And I'd ask, you know, you're part of a forum. Yeah, would it be appropriate to mention us there? She says, oh, I've already done it. There's a long discussion. Hey, come take a look. I'm like, really? And sure enough, there'd be this long discussion. I'd start recognizing names of people who'd signed up in the previous week. I'm like, huh. And then, um, oh, I should have one here as a prop. Then there were the coffee mugs. This was huge. When some mom was really nice to me, or I'm like, time for learning coffee mugs, I would put her mug in a box, put a bunch of those little peanuts in it, write a time for learning message to her, a card, put it in the box. And every day I'd take a big plastic bag of these over to the uh, post office, run them through the machine before we could do that at home, and ship out 20 of these coffee mugs. I think I built the business on the back of this. Women loved them. They'd end up on their desk with pencils in them or they'd use them for coffee. I mean, I'd, I'd hear about it. I'd see pictures of them. Just that personal touch. Of course, you know, in the modern world, people are using all these marketing automation systems and a gazillion other things. Nobody's fooled. There's a huge difference between the personal touch when you actually engage with a person. They feel it. You learn from it. Everybody's enriched. Endless spam that hits my box and, and everything else. I really urge people to be sensible in, in the use of these tools, that they should automate a personal touch. They shouldn't be a way of spamming all those poor people out there. Well, I like that a lot, especially in the world just becoming more and more digital. And we're sitting here talking online. What are some other ideas you guys have had or things you've tried over the years that you've found effective to just make a, a better connection with your customers? Over and over, and the question comes down to time, enthusiasm, insight, and humility. I'm not making up the list, but that's how I think of it. I mean, I run a pretty big company now. Uh, we're tens of millions. I still find it invaluable to talk to customers and ask them how it's going. Not, not the customers I spoke to before, but new ones. Back when we had an office, I would love it if I saw an unguarded phone in the support group. I'd go pick it up and do support again. And then at the end of the conversation, I'd ask, gosh, do you have just an extra minute? I'm curious. I'm actually the, you know, the founder of the company. I get to do a support a little bit. Can I just ask a few questions? And I'd ask the same questions. Why are you homeschooling? What led you to homeschooling? How did you get started homeschooling? What curriculum did you use first? What were your challenges? How did you first hear about Time for Learning? What did you expect when you signed up for it? What was the sign-up process like? What was your first day with it like? What were those experiences like? Now you've used it for five months. What do you like? What do you not like? How much of it do you use? If you had a wish list, what would you most like? Oh, that's good. What else? That's good. What else? Okay, let me see if I got it. And I feed it right back to them. I write notes. I write a memo to the execs. Hey, I ran into this. Is this typical or not? Let's put it on the survey. So we're constantly surveying our customers. Not all of them, but small groups every week. And we have some time series data to see if they're changing. But we also have things, we, ideas we test out. And where do these ideas come from? Well, the customers, we're, we're such an important part of their life. You ask them and they, they'll, they'll tell you. I was just going to say, I mean, in terms of hours of engagement with a product, yours probably has far higher average than the average 
subscription merchant that I talk to just from the time that the kids and the parents spend on it. So I assume they feel like it's very much worth their time to give you feedback on what their interaction has been, if it has any chance of improving the product itself. So my business advice is this to people, try and get involved in a product that matters to customers, not a nice to have, not this or that, something they're going to spend time on. It's going to be important to them. Now, you can't always find that, but it's a good ambition to start with. What's important to people really? Stay focused not on something trivial, but something significant. And then find the people to whom it it really matters. The supplemental helping people, we, we like that and it's useful. But we don't get the same energy. We're not the same part of life as we are for the homeschoolers. For these people, we're vital. And then keep the channel of communication open. Keep asking. The way people were feeling last year is different than the way people are feeling this year. Our software, of course, keeps changing. We keep moving with the times. And maintaining a software business in this day and age is both easier and much, much harder. I mean, the security attacks, the privacy and security issues, the things that come at us. Every day are very, very sophisticated. People trying to get into the database and do stuff. People's expectations for software quality is insanely high. Of course, we all like to be there. But the software you mostly use is Facebook and Google and Amazon and eBay and and Zoom and all. And these things, you know, they got a billion dollars of user interface optimization trying to meet the expectations set by that sort of software when you're a small company, well, it's hard. I mean, we try really hard to make everything just intuitive and obvious, but you know, no one's got the resources like that other than the big boys. But the tools have gotten a lot better. And if you're using the best tools and you're, you do have highly motivated engineers who know how much this matters to people, you can get there. And that's what we're about, trying to get there with the team we got the best satisfied user people. And when the users call up and point out that things could be better, that should get cleaned up. In fact, it's on the schedule for next month. I'm sorry it's taken so long. I'm sure they like that feedback too, to just know that, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel or you're addressing my concerns too. And again, all of that probably goes back to engagement and liking to feel like they're a part of the journey, not just users of a piece of software. In terms of, you were talking about the stair-step growth over your 17 years. One question I just have to ask is, of course, what has the pandemic been like? I mean, when things happened, you know, of March of last year, did you see an immediate influx or did that translate over into the year following? So homeschooling has been a growth industry since I started in it. That what was a tiny industry with maybe 1% of the population kept growing. It grows because it works. There's a lot of kids who do a whole lot better outside of an institutional environment. There's kids who progress better at their own pace than at some disciplined pace the way the school is. It's either too fast or too slow for them. The community inside the homeschooling world is fantastic. It's excited. It's, they have a sense of pioneering and creating their own lives in a way that you don't get through the PTA and inside the schools. So homeschooling has grown. Unfortunately, it's often been because of some of society's ills, some of the problems. I mean, school violence is terrible. No one wants to think of their kid going to school and going through live shooter drills, but it's resulted in growth and homeschooling. We all know the teachers are not that well paid, but there's an awful lot of rules that they're really on the hook to deliver good test results. That's a pretty brutal career path for a lot of them. And a lot of the best ones quit and went to private schools or other careers where they had more room to be creative and we're being held to these standards in those odd ways. 
leads to a lot more homeschooling. And these are sort of accidental homeschoolers is how I think of them. The people who didn't intend to homeschool, but some stuff happened and now they're homeschooling. The pandemic is um, the same thing. I mean, it's terrible. It's very hard on everybody. But the school choices that people made and are making is definitely moving to homeschooling. Here's the numbers. January 2020, no pandemic yet visible in the U.S., uh, 4% of the K-12 population was being homeschooled, 4%. The current numbers nobody has. The most recent one was last April. The U.S. Census Bureau produced a study saying that a little over 10% of the K-12 population was being homeschooled. And by homeschooled, let me be clear, this is when the parent is the school. Parent is the teacher of record, the school of record. It doesn't mean remote schooling. It doesn't mean virtual schooling. This is, you've severed ties with a formal academic institution, and the parents have taken the plunge into guiding their student through that school year. So it's up over 10%. It's inside our company. There's both real enthusiasm that we're, that we're doing so well, and there's so much growth. Frankly, it's been very stressful. There's a real sense of mission, like we're supposed to take care of these people and help them to the best of our ability. When I say the phone doesn't stop ringing, it's time for learning. The demand has been fantastic. It's been unmanageable. Phone lines have never gone down. We still register people. Everything works. There's been plenty of people in our business who just collapsed under the web load. We have scaled aggressively, but it's, there's just a lot of incoming. And these people's need is very real. We take it very seriously. Moms call up hysterically scared over the choice they're trying to make. They're scared about the health of their kid in the school. They're scared about the um, educational quality. Having watched a lot of children last year, they know their children weren't paying attention, didn't learn anything. They felt hopeless. They don't want to do it again. So you know, what is this homeschooling word? And they call up us because we're so visible. And we try and give them good advice. We have a free online guide to homeschooling that, that helps a lot. We also urge them, you know, don't overthink it. Go ahead and get started. And then over the next few weeks, hit it with a lot of energy because there's going to be a lot more to do. But don't leave the kids just sitting around and keep going. Do you find that your subscription model is effective and good at helping them over the barrier? Because I would think that another way you could offer the product is, okay, you sign up for the year now. You pay me for the whole school year, use it or not, but sign up and pay a few hundred dollars, but you've taken on the subscription model. So do you think some view it as, all right, that's not a lot, 20 bucks is a month, I'll give it a try. Honestly, I think Time for Learning has sort of the best education that could possibly be done. And I think we provide tremendous customer service. There's a lot of things I'd say we're great at. Revenue optimization business model, I haven't done a whole lot on this. Would we make more money if we told people, you know, you got to sign up for a year, whether you use it or not. Should we be priced at $40 a month and not $20 a month? I get this stuff all the time. Not really what I like to think about. We got a good business. We've never raised prices. We've been at the same price now for since 2004. I think it's overdue that we do face up to the fact that it's very expensive to do what we do. And so I do probably have to think about business model and pricing one of these years. I will say this about that. I've watched other subscription businesses. Many of them license software that doesn't get used. So the language programs are famous for this. Don't you want to learn to speak Spanish? Don't you want to learn to speak French? And in a moment of ambition and aspiration, people say yes, and they sign up. 
And when you sign up, it's so-and-so a month. Or you can get the whole year for this amount. And it's a pretty low amount. Or you could have a lifetime subscription for this amount. And it's not that big. Or you could have a lifetime subscription across six languages for this amount. And pretty soon people are like, yeah, I'm going to learn six languages. And they hit click and it hits their credit card and off goes the money. And they use it three times. You know, that might be better for the language company. That's not what we've done. We'll take the 20 bucks a month, have a relationship, earn it as we go. There's probably smarter things to do. That's someday we'll deal with it. And thanks for sharing all that. I mean, I think this is something that founders struggle with all the time, right? Is, is how to price my product? How, what are the different ways I can offer it? I don't want to, I want this ongoing revenue stream that's great about subscription, but is that the only way to monetize? But it might be the right model. And it sounds like it's worked well for you. We're getting to a size where we probably could get a business optimization type in and really focus on such things. I don't want to sound like that's not an important part of business. All the parts of business are important. I would encourage founders and people that are getting going to remember that there's no cleverness in pricing that will make up for a product that people don't care about. And making people care about your product is partly urging them on and getting them hyping them and making sure they understand the benefits of it. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is the core product. What do you got? What I love about our business is it keeps us very, very honest. The user of our product is the child and the mom, and they communicate pretty well. <laughs> if a child doesn't like our product, doesn't like learning, tells mom, I hate that. <laughs> if mom can't assign things, can't see lessons, if it doesn't work and she doesn't see the kid learning, she's not sentimental. She hits cancel and goes and signs up for something else. This gives me all the excuse I need to focus on quality of education and impact. And this gets me out of bed in the morning. And this is, I would urge people over and over again, look, starting a business is really hard. It's a huge effort. Put a little thought and then some more thought and a lot more thought into what is the day-to-day -day stuff you're going to be doing? Are these people you want to be talking to? Are these issues you want to be talking and thinking about? Is this a growth opportunity or is it a hot area right now? That at its, it's at its peak and about to go the other way. Um, getting the business going will take years. Plan several years ahead. The biggest part of this for us has always been uh, the search engines. That we've done very well in the search engine optimization world. Google's been very good to us. Yahoo, Bing, also to a certain degree. The reason is we take no shortcuts. We try and follow Google's rules. In addition. We try and think, you know, what is Google going to crack down on next in terms of not very savory business practices? What, what is going to be a problem for them? Let's not do that at all. Even though it might be perfectly white hat now, we try and predict, you know, what is Google trying to reward? They're trying to reward useful content that people find that's sticky, that's unique. Let's do that, even if they don't have rules against something. So we've always taken the long view. And it's been very good to us. And I would urge that. There's just way too much short-term startup thinking, which doesn't work because the businesses always take longer to get going. You might get yourself through one round of financing, but that's when your troubles really begin because you know people finance you, then they think they own the place and you're not delivering on your promises and all of a sudden everybody hates each other and there's conflict and you know, life's too short for that. I started the company, I was fortunate I had, when I think of it as seven or eight years ahead. I and mean, you could say it was my retirement. I was already in my mid-40s. 
I was ahead because of I'd saved my money through the years and put it away. And I thought, okay, that could be my retirement. It's a nice nest egg. What if I bet it on starting a company? I could go raise capital or this and that. I'm like, no, no, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I will go do it. I will bet my nest egg. This will keep me focused. And also, I don't have to do that many things. I don't have to write business plans. I don't have to do decks. I don't have to talk to all those people who call me up. Hey, you want financing? No, thank you. Click. Leaving me time to talk to my customers and focus on my software product. So that was my formula. Keeping it very simple. not trying to do too many things. I didn't add fourth and fifth grade until I was pretty good at K through third. Then we added middle and then we added high school. It's always been step by step that way. Took longer, but that's the plan. Well, to your point about your advice for find something that you are passionate about or can get passionate about, that has certainly come through in your passion for your business. You talked about all of the time and effort and hard work that you wanted to put into it because it was something that you cared about. And it is so important. And you found something that consumers can really connect with because they know it's important, right? That point for sure has come through from you today. Oh, fantastic. Great talking to you. So before we go, if the listeners have any questions or you know something we talked about today and, and wants to get in contact with you, how can they do that? And of course, tell us the website for uh, Time for Learning because it's, it's a little tricky. So it's timeforlearning.com, time, the numeral four, learning. You can send emails into there. I guess I'm John, J-O-H-N, at timeforlearning.com, president, founder. We're the leading homeschooling learning service on the web and available in all 50 states and a whole bunch of countries. Awesome. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on the show today, sharing your story. It was very interesting and best of luck moving forward. Okay. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.